Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month we'll be delving into the evolutionary history of the European wolf and taking a look at the curious genetics of mitochondria. I'm Jeff Marsh. As you may well know, mitochondria exist in all eukaryotic cells, providing the vital role of producing energy. It's now widely accepted that at some point in their evolutionary history, mitochondria existed as free-living cells, that then transitioned into organelles of our single-celled ancestors. The vast majority of the mitochondria's genes moved across to the nucleus of their new landlords, and there now exists a tight interplay between those nuclear genes and the remaining genes on the mitochondria. As such, one would expect that they should be inherited as a unit. And given that mitochondria are maternally inherited, theory would suggest that the X chromosome would be the likely location for the nuclear genes. But a recent paper which tested this gave some unexpected results. I spoke with Jeffrey Hill from Auburn University, Alabama in the United States, who's recently written a news and commentary article on this topic. Mitochondria are one of the most interesting components of complex life. So I learned about mitochondria as a grade school kid drawing the cell and the powerhouse of the cell. But it wasn't until I started reading some of the writing of Nick Lane that I realized how fascinating mitochondria were and that the origin of mitochondria is really the origin of complex life. Okay, so as you said, many of us will know mitochondria as this little organelle safely tucked into our cells, but they also have this incredibly interesting distant evolutionary history. So it used to be thought that a eukaryotic cell engulfed a bacterium that became the mitochondria, but the new thinking is that it wasn't that way at all. It was two relatively simple organisms that fused, that formed a new chimeric organism, and that what we see today in plants and animals and fungi is the outcome of that, where what we think of as the main cell is one of those original single-celled organisms, and then the mitochondria still exist as the other one. And they both have genetic material that predates the chimeric fusion, and that's where things get so interesting. Okay, let's talk about that genetic material then. What exactly has happened to the mitochondrial genes throughout this transition from from free-living organism to organelle that we all know? Now, what's becoming clear is that when these two cells formed to create this new organism, the entity that became the mitochondria transferred more than 95% of its genomic material to the other cell, to the other half of the partnership. They're now completely and totally interdependent on each other. They become a single organism through the this new partnership. And and it gets even more complex than that because a small subset of those nuclear mitochondrial genes are thought to form complexes with the remaining mitochondrial genes. Right, exactly. You've got a very small set of genes in the mitochondria that code for their set of proteins and then you've got a very large set In the nucleus, it codes for many proteins. A set of those proteins go into the mitochondria, and then a subset of those genes that go into the mitochondria actually form complexes with the proteins that are coded for by the mitochondria. And we call these mitonuclear complexes. And so the products of the nucleus and the products of the mitochondria have to be compatible. And what role do these complexes play? Are they essential for mitochondrial function? 
Well, that's what's really fascinating, not just mitochondrial function, whole organism function. The key complexes that are formed are the electron transport system, which is arguably the single most important protein complex in a eukaryotic body. So these electron transport complexes create over 90% of the energy that we use in our body. Okay, so given that there's this critical relationship between the mitochondria, which as we know are always maternally inherited, and the nuclear genes, surely that gets a bit confusing given that we get a mix of genes from our mothers and fathers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So there's constant pressure on a population of organisms to keep these sets of genes working in concert. So one solution to this is to link the mitochondrial genes and the nuclear genes in your mode of transmission, your mode of inheritance. So the co-adaptations are are retained generation to generation. Okay, so the theory goes that in an animal such as ourselves with an XY sex determination system, the X sounds like a sensible place to house these mitochondrial genes because they too would be maternally inherited about 67% of the time. Yeah, that's the idea. So yeah, you put the nuclear genes that will go into the mitochondria and, and form these complexes on the X chromosome, and then the, the mitochondrial genes are inherited mother to daughter, and most of the time the X genes are also inherited maternally mother to daughter. So the odds are they're going through the maternal lineage. And this is thought to help maintain the co-adaptation of the nuclear mitochondrial genes. Okay, so the news and commentary that you wrote for Heredity this month was based around a paper by Drown et al., which recently set out to test whether indeed that was the case. Yeah, exactly. They published this paper in Genome Biology and Evolution. So they found good information on 14 species of mammals, everything from humans to pigs to mice, and looked at the published gene sequences. And their goal was to test the idea that the genes that express in the mitochondria will be overrepresented on the X chromosome because that's where we predict you'll promote co-adaptation of the mitochondrial nuclear genes. And they found not only were they not overrepresented on the X, much to their surprise, they were highly underrepresented. Why might this be? Why didn't they find genes in this theoretically very plausible location? Right. So we're going to now leave the data and go into the realm of speculation. Drown et al. proposed the interesting idea that the reason there's few of these mitochondrial expressing genes on the X chromosome is because of sexual conflict. So if you have a gene that's on a sex chromosome, then you can have different benefits to males and females based on what that gene does. And if the female lineage has primary control of a gene, you can have the evolution of expression of the genes that benefits the female to the detriment of the male. And so if there's going to be selection to remove those problems. Okay, so there's no hard evidence for that at this stage. Are there other explanations? Yes, there's actually two other, at least two other explanations. The simplest explanation is that the autosome that, that evolved into the X in the mammalian lineage by chance had few of these mitochondrial genes expressed on them. And that's perpetuated through today. So there's really no adaptive explanation for this. 
The other explanation, which I think is really interesting, but it's it's completely hypothetical, is to promote coevolution. So we talked about co-adaptation. Once you get the nuclear genes and the mitochondrial genes working together, you would think, okay, put a rope around them and hold them together and push them through generations as a unit so you never break those co-adaptations. But, of course, the world changes. Environments change, and the organisms that can evolve to meet the changes do better. And so by creating tight co-adapted units, you really hinder co-evolution. The only way uh, the mitochondrial nuclear complexes can evolve is if they're independent so that the, the changes can occur in, in one side and be matched by changes in the other side, and you can, you can move forward in an evolutionary sense. Okay, so it seems to me that we have at least three hypotheses there, some very interesting ones from sexual conflict to random chance to the ability for independent evolution. How are we going to get to the bottom of this? What kind of data are you looking for? Well, yeah, of course. Ideas are great. They're fun. It's my favorite part of biology. But we want to know what really happened. And the good news is the evidence to distinguish among these hypotheses is coming if it's not already here. And the evidence will be the gene sequences and the gene mapping that's being done currently. So we have more total information on where specific genes exist within both the mitochondrial genome and and the nuclear genome and exactly what those genes are doing in these functional units. That was Jeffrey Hill. Next up, I spoke with Robert Wayne from the University of California, Los Angeles. He works on tracing the evolutionary history of European wolves and hunting out the genetic effects of population bottlenecks throughout their troubled past. Equipped with whole genome sequence data from the domestic dog, he and his team have been able to produce the most comprehensive reconstruction of these animals' histories to date. Here's Robert. The European wolf roams throughout Italy, the Iberian Peninsula, and to Scandinavia and parts of Western, but mostly Eastern Europe and into Russia and in parts of Asia as well. It has a really wide distribution. In fact, the wolf probably has the largest distribution of any terrestrial vertebrate. Okay, so there are lots of these different populations across Europe, and they've all got different histories and whatnot. But one common theme that they all share is that they've been through severe bottlenecks at the hands of things like hunting and habitat loss. Yes, and our paper suggests that the bottlenecks are both recent and fairly ancient, historic, that some bottlenecks have occurred some time ago. In fact, over the last 40,000, 50,000 years, it seems that wolves have declined rather continuously from a very high point historically to a very low point today. And that conclusion is supported as well on complete genome sequencing data. So you mentioned there that you're using genomic data. What what does that allow you to do that using sort of small numbers of genetic markers as people have done in the past allows you to do? Well, it gives us a complete picture of genome-wide patterns of variability. In the past, uh, often population geneticists would look at maybe 10 or 20 discrete loci, and the inferences that we could make from sampling such a small proportion of the genome were somewhat questionable. And it's only recently we've had new tools and complete genome sequences. We can design these 
SNP genotyping arrays that tell us about variability in tens of thousands of loci instead of just 10 or 20. And that then reconstructs much more accurately the history of populations and their relationships. And so these genomic tools that you have at your disposal uh, really come about because the domestic dog is, is a, a model organism. Yeah, exactly. The domestic dog genome was sequenced in 2005. And with that sequencing came the discovery of all this variation, which we call SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. Those SNPs could be encoded on an array, which um, binds DNA from their corresponding variant. And that allows you to score in one experiment uh, 40, 50, or in this case, 60,000 SNPs. How do you go about getting the genetic wolf samples? That sounds a bit risky. <laughs> well, fortunately, we have collaborators um, all over the world who, who send us samples. And mostly it's from individuals that have been captured as part of an ecological study. There are samples from individuals found dead, and uh, we recover DNA from their tissues. And in some cases, even there are samples of individuals that were hunted. So you had a specific set of hypotheses that you set out to, to test in this experiment. Why don't you uh, tell me what those were? Well, uh, we already had some data suggesting that Iberian, Italian, and East European wolves were different. So we confirmed on a genome-wide basis that kind of separation. But we also were able to reconstruct the demographic history of those populations when they diverged. And that's much more recent than we thought. One of our discoveries is it's on the order of maybe four or 5,000 years ago instead of maybe 10, 20, 30, or 40,000 years ago. The recent ancestry of the European populations was a real surprise. And they also went through bottlenecks uh, during that time. So those are some of the important discoveries that we've made. We also, by doing this genome-wide approach, we could look at SNPs, which had anomalous, highly divergent patterns across populations, suggesting that those variants are located near genes that are under selection. And what do you suppose those genes were then under selection? Well, we can't be sure, uh, because some of them are rather general genes that affect cell growth and division. And uh, well, so we picked out a few that seem almost intelligible, one being a platelet-derived growth factor. And we know that wolves differ in body size, and so uh, we hypothesize that some genes should be related to growth, somatic growth, and so this is one of them. And it's really our best candidate that might actually be experiencing divergent selection across populations. And so given these new findings, are you optimistic about the future of the European wolf? Well, it changes our perspective a little bit. It suggests that it isn't just the recent um, human activities that have affected wolf numbers, that there's a more ancient trend superimposed on, on the recent trend. And in fact, wolves were much more abundant, it seems, 10, 20, 30,000 years ago than they are today. And so limits or goals for recovery we might set today kind of uh, are put in a new perspective, that those numbers of uh, our recovery goals are, are even far smaller than existed historically and, and long ago past. So with regard to conservation of the gray wolf, I'm optimistic. It is recovering in some areas. There's still, especially in Italy, not much prey base for them to utilize, so their numbers are sort of capped. In the Iberian Peninsula, in many places, the wolf numbers are doing fairly well. But one still existing threat is hybridization with dogs, especially where the prey base has disappeared and wolves come into small towns to take advantage of refuse. 
and garbage left behind by humans where they interact with dogs and can breed with them. And that's actually the subject of our, our next paper, is this uh, dog-wolf admixture that seems to have occurred throughout Europe and the recent past, and maybe even in the distant past as well. That was Robert Wayne from UCLA. And that's it for this episode, and indeed for 2013. Join us again next month for your next edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. Music